The following presentation is brought to you by the Realm Network. Buzz Burbank, news and comment. TikTok on the inevitable impeachment. This is Thursday, June 20th, 2019. Thank you for supporting independent news by patronizing my sponsors and through the PayPal donate button at buzzburbank.com. As the President of the United States is weakened each day by the scandals that surround him, we learned this morning that Iran has shot down an American drone it says violated its airspace. The U.S. says the drone was over international waters, so the incident increases the military tension between the U.S. and Iran. Meanwhile, the President of China, Xi Jinping, has arrived in North Korea to meet with dictator Kim Jong-un to discuss their separate disputes with Donald Trump and their hatred for the United States and how they might work together against the U.S. More on the Iran situation is coming up in this report. Also breaking this morning, news that the U.S. State Department official in charge of arms control talks with Moscow is a longtime friend of the once boyfriend of Russian spy Maria Butina. That State Department official, Andrea Thompson, has also served as national security advisor to, wait for it, Vice President Mike Pence. And Ms. Thompson never disclosed her relationship with Butina's boyfriend during her confirmation hearing. Her once boss, Mike Flynn, lied to the FBI about his contacts with Russian officials and is going to prison for it. Congress plans to investigate, and we will continue to pursue this story as well. I run the country, said Donald Trump. He was still talking to ABC's George Stephanopoulos in the same interview in which he had said, as reported here last week, he would accept dirt on a political opponent from a foreign government and that he might not report that to the FBI. Equally disturbing revelations tumbled out over the days that followed until the whole thing was aired Sunday evening. Stephanopoulos also asked about the Mueller report's conclusion that Trump had tried to fire Robert Mueller. Trump rejected that conclusion but added he could have if he'd wanted to and insisted it would not have been obstruction of justice. Looking for a basis for that claim, the ABC anchor asked, A president can't obstruct justice? A president can run the country, declared Trump. And that's what happened, George. I run the country. Inspired by a quote from Nixon, Stephanopoulos rephrased the question, When a president does it, it's not illegal? Then Trump cited Article 2 of the Constitution, which is, as he put it, very strong. Read it, he said. It is strong, and we should. For every authority granted to the president in Article 2, there are restrictions, reminders that Congress is a check and balance on his powers and that he loses some of those powers during an impeachment. It also explains how he can be removed from office. Article 2 also includes the presidential oath to uphold the laws and constitution of the United States. The 30 hours Stephanopoulos spent with Trump included a lot of questions. At one point, the anchor points out many of these questions were things Mueller wanted to ask, so why answer them for the TV journalist but not for the federal investigator? Because they were looking to get us for lies, for slight misstatements, said Trump, adding, I looked at what happened to people and it was very unfair, very, very unfair, very unfair. The subject of collusion also kept coming up, and not because Stephanopoulos asked about it, he didn't. It was Trump who kept drifting back to and hammering away at the subject of collusion with Russia. When the anchor pointed out that habit, Trump sniped, Look, George, you're being a little wise guy, okay? Which is, you know, typical for you. 
Trump didn't trust Stephanopoulos any more than he trusted Robert Mueller. The difference is that Mueller had legal authority to enumerate the crimes of the president and his campaign officials, and Stephanopoulos had a camera. At one point during the Oval Office part of the interview, Trump advisor Mick Mulvaney coughed. Trump demanded a retake as if he were shooting an episode of The Apprentice. This was, after all, TV. Speaking of second takes, it was Sunday morning when, between attacks on the press, Trump tweeted wistfully, At the end of six years, after America has been made great again and I leave the beautiful White House, do you think people would demand that I stay longer? The 22nd Amendment, also very strong and worth reading, says, quote, No person shall be elected to the office of president more than twice. Former Trump lawyer Michael Cohen and a number of respected commentators have expressed serious concerns about whether this guy will ever leave under any circumstances. The FBI director is wrong, said Trump, about Director Ray's declaration that foreign contacts with U.S. political campaigns must be reported and investigated. Meanwhile, in a key federal courtroom, Trump's lawyers were arguing that a president cannot be investigated by Congress, law enforcement being an executive branch power. But the Constitution also says Congress has investigative power and oversight over mobsters and corporations and presidents. Congress can and does investigate presidents, but Trump's lawyers have submitted a serious argument that a president cannot be investigated. Strangely, the legal brief filed by Team Trump also shyly admits that Congress can investigate a president if it's part of an impeachment. It's as if the president were inviting impeachment by arguing in court that's the only way to go forward. The willingness of an American president to accept help from a foreign government is the very thing the nation's founders were determined to avoid, and it's now a core-shaking reality. What other laws and principles might he disregard between now and the next inauguration day? He might slap an executive privilege claim on his refusal to let Congress do its oversight, refusing to let it see the backstory on this new census question about citizenship. He might decide to keep on advisor Kellyanne Conway, despite federal ethics officials' advice she be fired from the entire federal government. What Trump appears to have learned from the Mueller report is that he had gotten away with everything and without consequence. With his re-election numbers weak, Trump's apparently decided to forge ahead his way. For starters, Kellyanne Conway stays and goes without punishment, despite her clear violations of the Hatch Act, which prohibits executive branch officials from engaging in politics. Trump and those under his wing are now, in his view, above the law. I would not have thought I needed to say this, tweeted Ellen Weintraub. Ms. Weintraub, chief caretaker of the nation's campaign finance laws, had a swift and certain response to Trump's off-the-cuff declaration that he would accept foreign help in his campaign. The nation's campaign finance laws include anything of value, which would seem to include information beneficial to a campaign. Those laws are supposed to be enforced by the Federal Elections Commission, which has been effectively powerless for the past 10 years. The board of the FEC, chaired by Ms. Weintraub, has been comprised of six members, three Democrats and three Republicans, so it rarely agreed on anything. The FEC is now down to four members, and it only takes one of them to veto a proposed punishment. 
When it comes to political campaigns, it's the wild, wild west out there because there is no sheriff. What could possibly go wrong? In the meantime, federal official Ellen Weintraub is at least speaking up to remind everyone that accepting foreign help is a crime and subject to investigation, beginning with her warning, I didn't think I needed to say this. 80% of Americans support requiring political campaigns that get offers of foreign help to notify the authorities, 80%. And a new Quinnipiac poll shows that nearly 7 in 10 Americans believe a president should be subject to criminal charges while in office, not just after they leave. The momentum for impeachment is growing, and the more it grows, the more resistant grows Nancy Pelosi. Pelosi rules House Democrats with an iron fist. If she says no impeachment, there's to be no impeachment. And while some Democrats fear her, most have immense respect for her experience, her leadership, and her success. Pelosi got word that Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler, who would preside over an impeachment, was raring to go without her blessing. The Washington Post reports she called together a handful of her top lieutenants to join her in persuading Nadler to slow his role. Her marching order to House Democrats that night was to call out Republicans for their support of a president who's trampling the Constitution and to focus instead on the Democratic agenda. Since that night, she has scolded members of our caucus who dared to speak publicly in favor of impeachment. One by one, they have heard from her, sometimes quite sternly. It's better to be with her than against her, says the freshman lawmaker who had tried to unseat her as speaker. While ruling with respect and fear, Pelosi finds ways to keep up morale as her Democrats in the House grow increasingly frustrated with her refusal to budge on impeachment. When that dam gets close to breaking, Pelosi tries to relieve the pressure by publicly accusing Trump of a cover-up and letting it leak that she wants to see him in prison. She even gave her frustrated brood a chance to blow off some steam in speeches she made possible because she allowed a vote to cite a couple of Trump officials with contempt. But despite these relief valves, the dam holding back calls for impeachment continues to fill. A month ago, only 30% of Democratic voters favored impeachment. It's now at 48%. That's an 18% increase. Among all voters, the numbers favoring impeachment are also up, just not by as much, according to this NBC News Wall Street Journal poll. Among all voters, 27% say there's already enough evidence to impeach. That number is also up in the past month by 10%. Among independents, 22% are ready for impeachment hearings and 34% want to keep investigating. But just among Republicans, a resounding 86% say Trump should avoid impeachment and finish out his term. Despite all the evidence, public support for impeachment is still weak. And Democratic leaders in Congress are, instead of leading, waiting to be led to impeachment. We are all still waiting. And while those poll numbers would seem to be a little threat to the president, other numbers are, including his own. As reported here last week, Trump denied the internal polling that leaked from his 2020 campaign, polls that show him trailing the top five Democratic contenders with a likely shellacking by Joe Biden. Trump claimed that those numbers, as reported by the New York Times, were made up. They reported fake numbers that they made up and don't even exist, tweeted Trump, even as his own staffers were saying the numbers were real. It was his denial that was the stuff of fiction. ABC News got hold of the numbers, confirming the Times report and further contradicting the president. 
Trump then claimed his internal polls were incorrect and fired several of his pollsters for both the bad numbers and for letting them leak. One of the pollsters, Kellyanne Conway's old company. And that's when Fox News dropped new poll results that showed what Trump's internal pollsters had also found, that Trump would lose to all of the top five Democratic challengers again by double digits in some cases. 49% of the Fox News audience favors a Democratic president at this point with a 10-point lead over Donald Trump. The campaign now says Trump's numbers look better when voters are asked their opinions in the context of a specific issue. Like, quote, the Democrats plan to provide free health care to illegal immigrants. On that question, says Trump campaign manager Brad Parscale, Trump beats Biden by 18 points. For what that's worth. Meanwhile, the prospect of losing to Biden by 13 points looms large. Right now, Biden looms larger than impeachment. In the meantime, without invoking impeachment powers, House Democrats keep pushing their investigations forward despite consistent resistance by the White House. The Intelligence Committee this past week subpoenaed former campaign officials Rick Gates and Mike Flynn to testify and to bring with them documents as they investigate contacts between the campaign and Russia. Last week, the full House voted to enforce the Judiciary Committee subpoena to former White House lawyer Don McGahn, who revealed Trump's efforts to fire Robert Mueller. But the Trump White House continues to stonewall congressional investigations and to obstruct justice by claiming executive privilege even when it doesn't apply. Democrats were excited this week to hear from former and longtime Trump confidant Hope Hicks. Her testimony would have been behind closed doors, but with the transcript available shortly afterward. The White House sent a lawyer to that closed-door session who stopped Hicks from answering nearly all the lawmakers' questions pleading executive privilege. But Hicks doesn't work for the White House anymore. She worked for Trump before the campaign. She worked in the Trump campaign and in the transition, none of which are protected by executive privilege. So there were many questions Hope Hicks could have answered if only the Trump White House had allowed it. What, asked Congressman Ted Lieu, are they trying to hide from the American people? Democrats say they will now likely sue Ms. Hicks to force her to testify. They're already preparing a lawsuit against former White House counsel Don McGahn for his refusal to appear. And tomorrow, the House Intelligence Committee will hear from former Trump business partner Felix Sater about his work on the Trump Tower Moscow project during the 2016 campaign when Trump claimed he had no business deals with Russia. Sater also had written an email to Trump lawyer Michael Cohen in 2015 that read in part, Our boy can become president of the USA and we can engineer it. I will get all of Putin's team to buy in on this, end quote. The president, meanwhile, tweeted madly throughout the morning, calling the congressional hearings rigged. Funny thing happened on the way to Rikers. Rikers Island is the brutal New York prison to which Trump 2016 campaign boss Paul Manafort was to be transferred while he awaits trial on financial charges from New York State. That's off now thanks to a highly irregular intervention by William Barr's new Deputy Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen. Manafort remains behind bars in Pennsylvania and will await his New York trial either there or in a federal lockup in Manhattan. Paul Manafort will not be going to Rikers, after all, because he has friends in high places. All the while, corruption trickles down through Trump land from the top. 
Trump's company, the one from which he didn't divest himself, has just sold a Beverly Hills mansion for $13.5 million. That's not only twice what Trump paid for the place, it's way, way, way over market value. It's nearly twice the assessed value. Why would someone want the president to get that much extra money? The buyer is a man who very much admires Trump and who wants to follow in Trump's footsteps as he runs for president of Indonesia. This Indonesian candidate is also a real estate developer who's partnered with Trump on two projects in his country. Having a relationship with the American president is the kind of campaign boost that's apparently worth $13.5 million. The Trump Organization deal was signed by Donald Trump Jr., who currently runs the company with his brother Eric. Daughter Ivanka, meanwhile, and her husband Jared Kushner continue to work in the White House, but it didn't keep them from making between 28 and $135 million last year from real estate and other investments and a book deal. Ivanka made nearly $4 million for her share in Dad's hotel down the street from the White House, she only made a million from her fashion company last year as she was phasing it out, she said, to focus more on her White House job as advisor to her father. This is all based on numbers filed with the government's Office of Ethics. And it was just last week that we learned that one of Kushner's companies has gotten $90 million over the past two years from an unknown offshore investor as he meets with foreign governments and business leaders ostensibly on behalf of this nation. While Kushner had divested himself of most of his companies, he held on to this one. He's conducted many of his foreign meetings in secret without any other U.S. officials present, which is the norm as a safety precaution to make sure the American negotiator is not compromised. Kushner was originally denied security clearance over foreign influence, but Trump overruled that decision. Trump Treasury Secretary Elaine Chao, on the other hand, felt the heat and sold her shares in a company that sells road-building materials. She's in charge of building all of America's roads while owning a concrete and asphalt company that could benefit from her new position. That leaves plenty of room to suspect a conflict of interest. Chao had promised the ethics office a year ago to sell those shares but just never got around to it and made an extra $50,000 from that company while dragging her high heels. Chow's family are big financial supporters of Trump and other Republicans, and she is the wife of Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, whose name will come up again in this report. Mick Mulvaney isn't just the president's chief of staff. Since he's also Treasury Secretary, he also heads the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, whose Obama-era founders included Elizabeth Warren. This week, Mulvaney fired all 25 members of the Bureau's advisory board after some of them had criticized his leadership. These academics and consumer advocates and even industry executives say Mulvaney was ignoring them and making terrible decisions. Eleven of them held a news conference to say that Mulvaney had broken the law by canceling meetings that are legally required. The new board at the CFPB will be smaller and friendlier to Mr. Mulvaney. A postal carrier can get fired for politics on the job, but fellow federal employee Kellyanne Conway can keep hers despite violating a law called the Hatch Act. Conway has repeatedly used her official capacity to bash Democratic candidates, which is not done, never done, not allowed. 
Trump overruled the very strong recommendation that Ms. Conway be fired and banished from all federal service, saying she had only been answering questions. And what happened to free speech, anyway? We'd have to ask that of the postal carrier, who would have been fired for doing what Kellyanne Conway now apparently has presidential permission to do. If you're anticipating a farewell tour from White House Press Secretary Sarah Sanders, you've likely already missed it. It's been over three months since she's held a press briefing, and the ones she held before that were a virtual waste of time for everyone involved. She's returning to her home state of Arkansas, where she may, at Trump's encouragement, run for and perhaps win the governorship. After a month shy of two years, Sanders has been one of the longest-serving top officials in the Trump White House. She used sarcasm to repeat and amplify the claims of the president because she believes in him that much. As she told the Christian Broadcasting Network, God wanted Donald Trump to become president. But Sanders also admitted to Robert Mueller that her claim that countless FBI agents supported the firing of James Comey was based on nothing. She admitted she'd made it up without basis and without data. It was something she'd said in the heat of the moment, she told Mueller, as she explained. It a slip of the tongue, she said. But most of Sarah Sanders' interactions with the press were indeed heated moments. In truth, Sarah Sanders shut down the press secretary's office back in January when Trump shut down the government. The nation went 41 days then without a press briefing, something it had not done in modern history. But that record was broken in March with a 42-day dry spell. And then... The briefing stopped again, and for the last time, apparently, 101 days ago. Along the way, she banned reporters from their White House beats, prompting a judge to declare that move unconstitutional. Like Trump, she had tried to sell falsehoods and distractions. She was caught clearly lying more than once about everything from Trump's election victory to video evidence he's publicly encouraged violence. At least one of her lies is forever documented in the Mueller report by the United States Department of Justice. Sanders is leaving on her own power, and she and Trump appear to share an intense respect for each other as she goes out the door. But a year ago this month, Sanders and her husband were asked to leave a restaurant in Lexington, Virginia, because the kitchen staff had refused to cook for her. No word on whether there will be a farewell news conference or whether perhaps we've already seen it. No word on a possible replacement, meaning will there even be one? The related job of White House Communications Director has been open since March, but like so many other positions in this administration, it also remains unfilled. The lies and corruption of this administration all trickle down from the top, from a man who has repeatedly claimed a high IQ without showing us what it is, the man who's repeatedly claimed he's a stable genius. His words prove he is neither. The Washington Post's Dana Milbank has compiled some stunning examples in outlining that proof. This week, the president accused the New York Times of treason for reporting on a U.S. cyber campaign against Russia, which you will hear more about shortly as well. Trump claimed it was treason to publish the report and that it wasn't true. First, it wouldn't have been treason unless we were in a declared war with Russia, which we are not, so on no level is it the technical crime of treason. Second, if the report were untrue, then it wouldn't betray any U.S. secrets, would it? 
But Trump, as usual, was having it both ways, saying the U.S. did not launch a cyber attack on Russia and to, to expose such a thing that didn't happen is treason. In that historic Stephanopoulos interview, Trump said the internal polls showing him losing to Biden, quote, don't exist. And then he fired the pollsters for the polls that don't exist. He said he'd take foreign dirt on an opponent and not tell the FBI and that the FBI director was wrong to say otherwise. The next day, he told Fox News, of course he'd call the FBI. Just before the interview, Trump had tweeted, I had nothing to do with Russia helping me get elected. A few minutes later, he tweeted, Russia did not help me get elected. The Post Dana Milbank also notes, in January, Trump tweeted in all caps, Mexico is paying for the wall. Seven minutes later, he slammed Democrats for refusing to pay for the wall. He said he would sign any bipartisan immigration bill put before him. The next day, he said he would not sign the bill without wall money in it. Also in January, Trump said he'd take responsibility for a government shutdown and then blamed it on the Democrats. Back in December, Trump declared, quote, we have defeated ISIS. The next day, he said Russia and Iran would have to, quote, fight ISIS without us. So was ISIS defeated or was it still around? He had, after all, said both, as usual. When Bob Woodward's book, Fear, came out, Trump called it fiction and then yelled at his staff for leaking that stuff. This high IQ, stable genius could not remember 37 things Mueller asked him about in those written questions. His tweets show he can't even remember what he said in the last sentence. And he is the President of the United States of America, holding what might still be the most powerful office in the world. A challenge has been filed against the application for a liquor license for a very fancy restaurant and bar in the nation's capital. The Alcohol Beverage Control Board has been asked to reconsider granting a license to the Trump International Hotel, which is owned by the President. The challenge argues that the owner does not meet the alcohol board's requirement of, to quote the law, good character and generally fit for the responsibilities, end quote. Warnings about this had trickled in for years, but it was breathtakingly unnerving to hear from our senior intelligence officials that China had hacked its way into our natural gas pipeline systems and that it has the ability to shut them down for weeks and that Russia has hacked into our power plants, giving them the ability to turn out our lights and shut down our computers for hours. Russians had invaded the nuclear power plant in Burlington, Kansas, among others. We heard this as it was explained to Congress back in January by the directors of the FBI, the CIA, and national intelligence. Up to that point, the only retaliation from the U.S. for Russia's cyber attacks had been to mess with the Russian trolls who had interfered with our election, shutting them down in the days surrounding the 2018 midterm vote. Thanks to new technology, though, and new rules for the military, that's changed. The U.S. now has the capacity to shut down power plants in Russia. It's the most aggressive move made yet by the U.S. on the cyber warfare front. This new capability serves as a deterrence, a warning to Russia not to cross any red lines. It also serves as a very real weapon, an ominous weapon, when you consider the lights could go out in both countries if things spin out of control.
The military's new unilateral authority to launch such an attack is reassuring and yet disturbing in that it escalates the Internet arms race in a way that someday may require peace talks similar to the ones that resulted in nuclear deals. Under a new law passed by Congress and a presidential memo, the military can launch cyber attacks now without authorization from either the president or Congress. White House officials don't think the president's been briefed on any of the details of this U.S. cyber attack on Russia. As the New York Times reports, quote, military and intelligence officials are reluctant to go into detail with Trump about operations against Russia for concern over his reaction and the possibility he might order it stopped or reveal it to foreign officials as he did in 2017 when he spilled the beans about a sensitive operation in Syria to the Russian foreign minister. The U.S. military says it has similar capabilities to switch off the electricity in Iran. Trump had repeatedly called the Iran nuclear arms deal dangerous before he pulled the U.S. out of that six-nation treaty and turned up the accusations and sanctions and insults against Iran. And then things got dangerous. Despite the U.S. departure from the deal, Iran stuck to it and continued to pass its nuclear inspections conducted by the countries that remained in the agreement. Iran also continued its usual criminal mischief, often through proxies for its own military. Trump squeezed Iran even harder with economic sanctions, named a wing of its military as a terror group, and has now accused Iran of blowing holes into a couple of oil tankers in international waters just off its coast in the Strait of Hormuz. He's also now sent another 1,000 American troops to the region to join the 1,500 troops added there earlier this year. There was talk of 20,000 troops, but that's since been ruled out for now. He's dispatched more aircraft carriers to the region, tweeting last month, if Iran wants to fight, that will be the official end of Iran. Never, wrote Trump, threaten the United States again with an exclamation point. It was another one of his fire and fury threats. Despite all the aggression, Trump says he wants to avoid a Middle East war and has vaguely offered peace talks while continuing to poke the bear. Critics accuse the administration of trying to provoke Iran into breaking the 2015 nuclear deal, disappointed that Iran didn't pull out when the U.S. did. If that's the tactic, it might be working. Iran says it will start violating that international nuclear deal one week from today if the U.S. doesn't get back into the deal, which isn't going to happen. Iran says it will soon produce more nuclear material than the agreement allows and more potent material than the deal allows. And it says the only other way to keep Iran in the deal is for European nations to help it get around those U.S. sanctions. Iran says it will also shut down the Strait of Hormuz, through which passes one-third of the world's oil. Iran says it also does not want war, but does not want talks, and will continue to resist the U.S. And it continued its mischief yesterday, attacking a U.S. oil company installation, today shooting down one of our drones. It is now extremely difficult for either the U.S. or Iran to back down. We have arrived at a dangerous moment all because of leaving the Iran nuclear deal. Trump's maximum pressure strategy has not worked, so he's leaning on it even harder. And he's getting support from Lindsey Graham, who serves on the Senate Armed Services Committee, who told an interviewer, just sink their Navy. 
Arkansas Republican Tom Cotton told CBS News Iran should be attacked immediately. Despite its denials, there's a fair chance Iran was behind the bombing of those Japanese and Norwegian oil tankers. Iran has long been a maker of trouble in the Middle East at the expense of well over 100,000 lives. It should be noted that the mines placed on the sides of those tankers were placed well above the waterline. Had an attacker wanted to sink those ships, the mines would have been attached underwater, causing the tankers to take on the ocean. These mines appear to have been placed as a warning about what could happen to the Strait of Hormuz and to the price of oil around the world. Oil prices have already shot up more than 3% this morning following the drone strike. For now, however, despite these attacks, tankers full of oil continue to pass through the strait at their usual pace. State Secretary Mike Pompeo even blamed Iran for a recent attack in Afghanistan that killed 10 American soldiers. The Taliban says it staged the attack, not Iran. It is for claims like these that the U.S. stands alone. So far, only Britain backing the American version of events. But other American allies are skeptical, or at least being more careful about pointing fingers than is the U.S. Japan and Germany, two other crucial U.S. allies, say they are not convinced by the case against Iran so far, and France is urging both sides to step back from the brink. The U.S. Secretary of State spoke to reporters this week while standing in front of large color images, inflammatory images of burning oil tankers to make laying the blame on Iran even more dramatic, even more inflammatory. He warned Iran that the death of even one American from Iranian mischief on the high seas would bring a military response. Quoting Trump, Iran did do it, and he vowed Iran would, quote, suffer greatly if it endangers American interests. And with that, he sent more troops, and Lindsey Graham asserted, just sink their navy. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, however, is now talking a bit more softly, saying the president does not want war and that we should not focus on just these attacks. Trump was also playing down the tanker attacks as very minor, telling Time magazine he might not go to war to protect the world's oil supplies, backing down from his tough talk heading into the weekend. But Trump said he would certainly go to war with Iran to keep it from getting a nuclear weapon. The Pentagon, you may be intrigued to know, strongly opposes trouble with Iran, preferring to finish its mission to destroy ISIS. The Pentagon, however, has not had a confirmed defense secretary to lead it for six months. Since the departure of Jim Mattis and to this moment, the U.S. military has been overseen by someone appointed by Trump to be an acting secretary of defense. An acting defense secretary does not carry the weight of one who's confirmed by the Senate. The man carrying the weight is Trump's national security advisor, John Bolton. It is Bolton who is deciding what opinions the president hears and doesn't hear. The old policy meetings with top officials have nearly ended, with John Bolton calling the shots now, and very little input from the armed forces. As reported here in February, this president prefers acting administration officials over those confirmed by the Senate as required by the U.S. Constitution. The Constitution makes allowances for acting cabinet heads and other top officials, but it never meant those acting positions to be permanent. It never anticipated Donald Trump, who told CBS in February, I like acting because I can move so quickly. It gives me more flexibility. Eight key government agencies have acting leaders now. The FDA, the FAA, 
FEMA, OSHA, the Secret Service, and ICE, as well as at the Equal Opportunity Commission. Seven cabinet and cabinet-level positions are filled by acting appointees, none of them confirmed by the Senate as the Founding Fathers demanded. Our ambassador to the UN, the head of the Small Business Administration, the chief of the Office of Management and Budget, and the White House Chief of Staff, along with the cabinet jobs in Defense, Homeland Security, and the Department of the Interior. As it turns out, Trump needs flexibility to replace these folks at will because most of them never should have gotten those jobs in the first place. On Tuesday of this week, in the midst of a very tense moment with Iran, the acting defense secretary, Pat Shanahan, withdrew his name as a nominee for the permanent job. Shanahan could not get FBI security clearance because he and his family had a secret that made Shanahan subject to blackmail. That secret isn't secret anymore, and it's tragic and sad. The secret was a violent domestic history involving Shanahan, but most especially his son, who had beaten his mother with a baseball bat. She, too, had had run-ins with the police for her own violence against Pat Shanahan. Shanahan says now that it's all out, he'll focus on his family, what's left of it, his other children. Quoting a North Dakota Republican senator, frankly, I'm a little surprised to hear he hung in there as long as he did, seeking a position like that. There was no way scrutiny wasn't going to get to those issues. Shanahan must have really wanted the job. If only there had been some way to avoid this. Democrats in Congress were as shocked as the nation to hear this tragic story, but especially shocked to hear that we would have a defense secretary subject to blackmail, proving the importance of the confirmation process over just winging it with acting appointees. Proving this administration doesn't bother to vet its nominees as it ducks around the Constitution, not even for the head of the most powerful military in the world. Democrats are ready to investigate and take action. Republicans in the Senate are ready to move on. Quoting Lindsey Graham, that's over. And now we have a new acting defense secretary. His name is Mark Esper. He's the latest Trump appointee. But this time, it's someone who's already been confirmed as Army Secretary and someone with military experience. Esper's being promoted from Army Secretary to Acting Defense Secretary to replace the guy who was acting there before. Trump has not said whether he will actually nominate Mark Esper for the permanent job, but he's the acting secretary for now. Mark Esper comes to us most immediately from the defense contractor Boeing, much to the disappointment of defense contractor Lockheed Martin. He replaces Pat Shanahan, who came to us from defense contractor Raytheon. And so it goes, literally. Shanahan is not the first Trump appointee to leave after embarrassing facts were revealed. His first choices for Army Secretary, Navy Secretary, Veterans Affairs, the Labor Department, and U.N. Ambassador also had to withdraw their names because of an administration that doesn't vet its best people. There is now credible evidence that the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia is liable for the murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi, and this should be further investigated. That is the conclusion of a United Nations forensic panel in a report out yesterday. The current U.S. president, whose son-in-law had befriended Mohammed bin Salman, last said he had no reason to suspect MBS's involvement. 
Trump also bypassed Congress to sell weapons and nuclear technology to the Saudi government, which is led by a man the U.N. suspects of murder. Nearly seven months before the 2016 election, the Boston Globe published a fake front page on its editorial page, illustrating what the news might look like in a year if Trump were elected. The all-caps banner headline reads, Deportations to Begin. The accompanying photo bears the caption, Trump, deport illegal so fast your head will spin. It took longer than a year, three as it turns out, but the front page of the Washington Post website this week included the headline, Trump vows massive immigration arrests, removal of millions of illegals starting next week. This very real Washington Post story was born out of a tweet Trump posted early Tuesday morning on the day he was to launch his 2020 campaign at what would be his 59th campaign rally since taking office. It was red meat for his base, firing up his supporters ahead of his campaign's kickoff event. Quoting Trump's tweet, they will be removed as fast as they come in, echoing the Boston Globe's so fast your head will spin prediction. What Trump is proposing, however, cannot be done. Immigrations and Customs Enforcement doesn't have the manpower to round up even a million people, and ICE officials say the public is not usually informed in advance about a big operation such as this. In other words, Trump had leaked again in his eagerness to fire up the base for that night's rally. ICE officials also say there is no way they can start this operation for a few more weeks at the earliest. ICE says it cannot immediately deport millions of people, as Trump has threatened or promised. Its charter planes can only carry about 200 migrants a day back to Central America. At that rate, it would take a while just to get to a million, much less millions. It's not as if ICE can just charter more planes and put more people on the job. It's already over budget for fiscal 2019. The agency on Trump's mind at the moment had been blindsided as usual. And Trump had just blown the secrecy off a plan ICE already had to conduct nationwide raids. ICE was ready for that. It wasn't ready for a sweep exponentially bigger, and immigration officials were not happy that Trump had spilled the beans and exposed what was supposed to have been a secret. Trump had given undocumented Americans notice that it was time to hide or just relocate making them harder to find, and making ICE's arrest numbers smaller, not bigger. ICE is now taking volunteers for deportation, asking the undocumented to come forward to give themselves up, knowing they'll be ripped from their homes sooner or later anyway. There are also legal problems with Trump's great threat. About a million people who had gotten deportation papers are appealing their cases, and the law says they cannot be removed during the appeals process. The program will also likely involve the arrest of parents while their children are at school, leaving those kids parentless at the end of the day and many of their future days. Children would again be separated from their families. Get ready again to see photos of crying children. Quoting Trump, my people love it. In the meantime, more than 11 million undocumented people are living in a heightened state of fear that they or their loved ones will be next. And although Trump cannot deport millions of them, as he said, he can and likely will deport as many as 50,000 people. That, but especially his words on the subject, are more red meat for his base.
Trump has decided to release the hounds because nothing else he's tried has worked in stopping immigration. He has, in fact, made things worse by cutting off money to the poverty-stricken nations whose people come here for a better life. He has failed by choosing cruelty to immigrants over getting tough with Americans who give them the jobs that the immigrants so desperately need. Trump is going tougher because he is weak, unable to fix the problem he had promised to fix. The raids are to begin next week, albeit three years later than the Boston Globe newspaper had predicted. The door-to-door raids begin next week. We also learned this week that well over 5,000 migrant adults have been placed in quarantine in various detention centers after being exposed to mumps or chickenpox by 39 migrants who have one disease or the other. The quarantine will last for another three weeks. Facilities, meanwhile, remain overcrowded, and now members of the exhausted Border Patrol are coming down with some of these same contagious diseases. The Boston Globe was ahead of its time in predicting the mass immigration roundup. The Orlando Sentinel, on the other hand, is ahead of its time in making an endorsement in the 2020 presidential race. The normally Republican editorial board at the Sentinel was endorsing not a candidate, but a commitment to not Donald Trump. After two and a half years, wrote the Sentinel, we've seen enough. The paper cited a few of the president's more than 10,000 lies since swearing his oath and how he has made lying normal. The big lies about millions of illegal votes in the 2016 election, about North Korea no longer being a nuclear threat, about windmills causing cancer, and about the non-existence of poll results we can hold in our hands. The Sentinel, a red newspaper in a red state that Trump needs to win re-election, accused Trump of being a bully who would even take election help illegally from a foreign country. The Florida paper reminded of that time in Helsinki when Trump sided with Putin over U.S. intelligence and his declaration of love for the murderous Kim Jong-un. The Sentinel says we may have to endure another year and a half of Trump, but quoting its editorial board, it needn't suffer another four beyond that. The paper may be on to something. A Monmouth poll earlier this year showed 56% of Democrats this time will back a stronger candidate against Trump, even if they do not agree with that Democratic candidate on certain issues. Instead, instead of voting for a candidate less likely to win who does align with their beliefs as they did in 2016. That is a huge change from 2016 when Democrats were divided over the right nominee. Oh, and that editorial subtitled Not Donald Trump, it was published by that Republican Orlando newspaper in that Republican-led state on the very morning that Trump was to land there for yet another campaign rally. Newspaper endorsements, honestly, don't normally affect how people vote, except when they are unusual. Trump looked out over a sea of red hats in Orlando that night, and it gave him the adrenaline he craves He played all his greatest hits, the Russia investigation, the Democrats, the media, Hillary, immigration. Lock her up, they chanted, as enthusiastically as they ever had. He told 15 more lies that night, including perhaps the most untrue and most harmful, that Robert Mueller had cleared him of all charges. The rally revealed that Trump 2020 will look a whole lot like Trump 2016, as the president claimed to kick off that campaign with what was, in fact, his 59th rally since taking office. The crowd went wild, believing it was voting on Trump's new slogan, Keep America Great. Salon.com's Bob Seska has more. 
Bob? Thanks, Buzz. You might not be surprised to hear that I watched Donald Trump's campaign kickoff rally in Florida the other night. And no, I don't suffer from some kind of bizarre masochism in which I get off on soul-crushing pain. The pain is there for sure. But watching Trump on television isn't a matter of fetishistic desire. No leather hoods or trapezes, at least not in this context. And by the way, that last part was a joke. Frankly, and at the risk of sounding tough-lovish, I feel as though keeping track of the clown dictator's slow destruction of our constitutional democracy is our mandatory patriotic duty. Covering the fire hose of news is, to me, on the same level as voting, though not anywhere in the vicinity of military service, which is a special kind of patriotic sacrifice all its own. And that's kind of my point. Fact-checking Trump is far from storming the beaches at Normandy or trudging through the rice paddies of Vietnam. I never served in the military, and I'm in the business of covering presidential politics. That's why I watch, ultimately. And I watch despite my chronic bouts of hopelessness, rage, and despair as I observe the unfolding crisis. Debunking the president, documenting the train wreck, and doggedly repeating the truth in an untruthful era is not just my pleasure, it's how I give back to a nation where I'm free to call the president a turd without fear of incarceration. It's the very least we all can do, and therefore abandoning politics because we're exhausted or frustrated simply isn't an option. Not now when the stakes couldn't be higher. Some days I wonder why the Democratic Party isn't the ongoing ruling party in America, and too often it seems like my fellow liberals are quick to become paralyzed with fear and way too easily wiped out, emotionally and intellectually. I worry, therefore, that we don't have the staying power in the face of maniacs and dictators, and I'm seeing this all over social media, blocking and ignoring the administration, abandoning politics, and generally checking out. This doesn't mean we can't take short breaks, turning our backs to the wind and refueling our outrage reserves. But once our breath is caught, it's back to the trenches and we fight on. One of the primary reasons why many liberals are quitting the battle before it's over is a nagging sense of futility. Why should we bother fact-checking and pursuing Trumpism when the Red Hats are so disconnected from reality? In other words, no matter what we say or do, the Trumpers will continue to repeat the counterfactual gibberish erupting from Trump's overly articulated yapper. For example, during Trump's rally the other night, the president shrieked about crazy Bernie and the false notion that the Democrats want to entirely replace our economy with socialism. Trump told his cult followers, quote, more than 120 Democrats have already signed up to support crazy Bernie Sanders socialist government takeover of health care. Extended round of booze from the Red Hats, of course. Apparently expanding Medicare to cover all American adults is a jeer-worthy socialist government takeover of health care. While the booing for Medicare raged on, Trump said they want to end Medicare as we know it. This is, of course, ridiculous. You can't defend Medicare while condemning the expansion of it. Well, actually, you can, because Trump just did, but it doesn't make it valid. Remember the old Tea Party protest signs, keep your government hands off my Medicare? And it made as little sense then as it does now, given that Medicare is a socialized, government-run health insurance program. We will never be a socialist country, Trump added to raucous cheering from his loyalists, ever. In reality, however, our economic system is considered capitalist, kind of. It's functionally more of a mixed economy, given our free markets and simultaneously existing socialist-style programs, such as Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare, S-CHIP, and so on. We have a social safety net, for now, 
and it undeniably has its roots in socialism. But good luck convincing the Red Hats of this, since the assumption is that socialism is either whatever's happening in Venezuela or the old Soviet Union. And that's where the Democrats are leading us, they say. Put another way, the Red Hats believe their own fear-mongering. But wait, there's more stupid. Republicans don't believe in socialism, Trump continued. We believe in freedom, and so do you. We will defend Medicare and Social Security for our great seniors. Again, those two programs are forms of socialism, which the Republicans apparently don't believe in. We will defend it like nobody else, the president concluded. Wow. I guess Bernie Sanders and other top-shelf Democratic presidential candidates must be slacking when it comes to defending Medicare and Social Security, especially their collective plan to expand Medicare and Bernie's plan to expand Social Security benefits. Well, you get the idea. Yes, I know this is infuriating and more than a little confounding, but the degree of misinformation, especially Russian and Fox News propaganda, must be countered with the truth, no matter how difficult it might be to muster the energy for it. As always, don't get happy, but don't get depressed either. We can win this because the truth is on our side, and the truth, no matter how hard fought, is worth fighting for. Don't let the Mad King win. He definitely doesn't deserve it. I'm Bob Seska for Buzz Burbank News and Comment. Thank you, Bob. Get more of Mr. Seska at Salon.com, his Patreon page, and Tuesdays and Thursdays on The Bob Seska Show at BobSeska.com. He'll have a fresh program this afternoon. I will be back with Bob again on Tuesday. As much as Trump needs Florida, it appears to be past him. Florida is a Republican-controlled state that is decidedly purple and leaning more blue in every election cycle. The numbers show Trump being beaten by both Bernie and Biden in 2020, Biden winning by seven points in the state that Trump calls his second home. Nationwide, 52% of us say we are very uncomfortable voting for Trump. And nationwide, Biden leads Trump by a landslide. If you're the one in the one in three voters in Kentucky who approve of the job that Mitch McConnell is doing as your senator, you're in for a treat. For a price... If you donate to McConnell's troubled re-election campaign, you can get a t-shirt that features a tombstone on the front that reads socialism and Mitch's pledge to kill socialism by blocking the Democrats printed on the back. And block them he has. Apparently obsessed with death, I'm proud to be the grim reaper when it comes to the socialist agenda they've been ginning up over in the House, McConnell told Fox News last week. The socialism McConnell believes he has stopped include Democrat-sponsored bills for equal pay, to protect patients with pre-existing conditions, to protect the environment, to get lower drug prices, to protect against government corruption, to popular laws to reduce gun violence, to expand voting rights, and to address the immigration mess. McConnell has proudly blocked every single bill he legally can of the ones that have come to him from the new Democrat-controlled House. But this next issue may be different. The issue of safeguarding our elections, and especially the 2020 election. Suddenly, Mr. McConnell may have to reconsider his block-everything agenda. By August, the House expects to have passed a big package of bills to protect the vote by giving more money to states to boost their voting system cybersecurity and directing Homeland Security to develop a defense strategy. 
Six in ten Americans believe the government has not done enough to secure our election systems. This time, the progress McConnell would be blocking isn't about politics. It's about the integrity of this government. And he knows that we know that. Later this month, McConnell will hear from the Senate Intelligence Committee on whether allowing a vote on these reforms is or is not a good idea. But Democrats won a huge victory this past week from the U.S. Supreme Court, which ruled that Virginia Republicans have no legal right to challenge a lower court's decision that they had racially gerrymandered some of their state's districts. This means that future elections, including 2020, will include districts with more Democrats in Virginia. Florida, too, is expected to see more blue voters now that some felons who've done their time and paid their debts have the right to vote in the Sunshine State, most of them as Democrats. The Trumpublican tax cuts that were to have trickled down to benefit all haven't. The head of Americans for Tax Fairness says only 4% of the workforce has gotten a raise or a bonus because of those tax cuts, which mostly favored corporations and the wealthy. And workers' health care costs went up in the meantime. The stock market's overall performance is strong, but half of Americans own no stock. Jobs continue to vanish in the automotive and retail industries especially, AT&T, meanwhile, got a tax windfall of $21 billion, and still, it didn't trickle down. AT&T, despite that windfall, eliminated over 2,300 jobs and cut its spending investments by $1.5 billion. The effects of Trump's trade wars should hit the public any day now. They've already devastated the retail industry and the jobs that went with it. Economists put the chances for a recession at 45%. How much plastic we're eating, not your grandfather's weed, and crooks are still stupid in the final segment after this. You know, I'd be very grateful if you would use the Amazon link at buzzburbank.com to get your own personal copy of the Mueller Report or Bob Woodward's book or any of the other great books that are out there now about our times, or better still, get them for a friend or family member. And please do all your shopping there year-round at home, school, and work. Shopping through my Amazon link helps keep this newscast going and free for the listening. Just go to buzzburbank.com and click on the Amazon logo. You land on your usual Amazon page, which you could then bookmark to replace your old shopping bookmark. And once you've done that, I get a little commission from Amazon for every purchase you make. So it really helps power this free weekly report. On your desktop browser, that Amazon logo is in the upper right corner at buzzburbank.com. On your phone, it's just under the title, Buzzburbank News and Comment. Now, if you choose not to use my Amazon link for any reason, then please support this free and independent reporting through the PayPal Donate button. Thank you for all of those things and for spreading the word about this effort. On this side of the looking glass, the EPA recently reported that Rolling back an Obama administration environmental rule could cause tens of thousands of additional premature deaths over the next 10 years. The Obama plan would have prevented 3,600 premature deaths a year in addition to 1,700 heart attacks and 90,000 asthma attacks each year. This is about the burning of coal to generate electricity. The Obama plan would have reduced the toxic soot in our air and cut back on the emissions that chew away at the climate by up to 32 percent. 
Oh, but for what might have been. Trump's goal is no longer clear. His effort to save the coal industry has failed with more coal-burning plants closed on his watch than on Obama's. Nevertheless, the Obama clean power plan has now been replaced by the Trump plan, which is to let states do their own thing. State government officials who may be beholden to their power companies or coal mines for campaign contributions are now free to make their own rules. Likewise, the growing number of states increasingly worried about climate change are fighting back and hoping their efforts are not canceled out by these pro-coal-burning states. New York Attorney General Letitia James is taking the Trump administration to court over what she calls a clear violation of the Clean Air Act with its replacement to the Obama Clean Air Rule. But New York's lawmakers and governor have agreed on a wide-ranging climate plan that would eliminate the state's greenhouse gas emissions entirely by 2050. By then, they expect, New Yorkers will have phased out petrol-burning cars, oil-fired furnaces, and that all of New York's electricity will come from carbon-free sources. New York's plan is exactly the recommendation of environmentalists who are focused on global warming. And an update now on the Trump administration's plans to end a Job Corps program that paid disadvantaged youth to learn to prevent and fight wildfires. The program was saved after objections from red state senators whose states would have been hit hardest by the proposed layoffs of 1,100 federal employees. Bayer, of aspirin fame, appears ready to put the Monsanto Roundup debacle behind it. Bayer owns Monsanto, and the lawsuits have driven down its stock value. After three separate juries found Monsanto liable for deaths related to its reportedly cancer-causing weed killer, that company and its parent have a PR headache on their hands that won't go away on its own. Bayer to the rescue. Monsanto's parent company says it will now spend well over $5.5 billion dollars on research to soften the product's environmental impact. They're changing the formula of Roundup. Bayer, now a leader in agricultural products, is also promising to reduce its environmental footprint by 30% by the year 2030. A full-page newspaper ad declares, We listened. We learned. But Bayer says it will continue to use glyphosate, that accused cancer causer, in its agricultural products. We also eat plastic, about a credit card's worth each week, each of us. Not just Americans, everyone in the world. A credit card of plastic we eat every week. We're eating the same microplastics that are killing ocean life, particles smaller than 5 millimeters that make their way into our food, water, and even the air. They come from our toothpaste, clothing fibers, and the particles that are released as a plastic bag disintegrates very, very slowly. Microplastics get into our rivers and the aforementioned oceans where they wind up in our seafood. Microplastics have been found in bottled water, table salt, shrimp, and beer. Bottled water, in fact, doubles your exposure to microplastics. No significant studies have been done on the effect of ingesting these particles on our health or lifespans. The worldwide production of plastic is expected to triple by the year 2050. Unless we use less of it instead of more. A record-breaking 633 divers from around the world gathered at Deerfield Beach, Florida this past week 
and cleaned up as much as 3,200 pounds of trash, including 60 pounds of nylon fishing line. It's just a drop in the ocean, as they say, but it's a start. An ocean-going ship docked in Philadelphia had as much as 50 tons of cocaine on board. 50 tons. 17 tons were seized initially. You heard about that. With now expectations of finding another 30 tons on board. Ship crew members who've been arrested admit that they got the coke from other boats at sea en route through Chile, Peru, Panama, and the Bahamas. From Philadelphia, the ship was bound for the Netherlands. Most of the cocaine was headed for Europe. It's one of the three biggest cocaine busts in the U.S. ever and evidence that the illegal stimulant has not gone out of style. But it's opioids that continue to be our undoing in the U.S. Health watchers say drug-related deaths among 18 to 34-year-olds skyrocketed, increasing by 108% in the past 10 years. Alcohol deaths in that group were up by 69%. Suicides up by 35% among America's young adults. 150,000 lives lost to those things among 18 to 34s. Opioid overdoses were a huge factor, increasing among millennials by more than 500% in the past 10 years. Deaths in that group from synthetic opioids were up by 6,000%. The reason? The millennials came along as opioid prescription writing was at its peak. Hospitals are overwhelmed, not just by the opioid crisis, but by the flood of robocalls jamming up the phones of the staff and even the patients. The phones were rung by robocalls 4,500 times in just two hours on one recent morning at Boston's Tufts Medical Center, where they're busy enough vaccinating kids against measles and eradicating the rarest forms of cancer. If a major health crisis hits, the phones could jam. Tufts has joined forces now with other institutions to pressure both the government and the phone companies to fix this. Robocalls to people's smartphones have doubled over the past two years to billions each year. A measles update. With the number of cases still soaring, New York lawmakers have voted to end the religious exemptions for immunizations, and Governor Cuomo has signed it into law. Only a handful of states have so far banned religious objections as grounds for bypassing the shots. By the way, the Washington Post yesterday published a profile of a New York couple that's donated millions of dollars to the anti-vax movement, including the group getting the most blame for the nation's current outbreak. This hedge fund manager and his wife have, over seven years, contributed more than $3 million to organizations discrediting vaccinations and funding three-fourths of the entire anti-vax movement. One couple. Well, it'll soon be time to harvest the strawberries. The full moon this weekend was named by the Algonquin tribes of our northern states the strawberry moon. To them, it meant time to harvest the strawberries. The full strawberry moon will reach its peak Sunday morning at 4.30 a.m. on the East Coast, 1.30 a.m. on the West, but it'll be its strawberriest, its reddest, very full, very large-looking, when it first rises on Sunday evening. Check your local listings for Moonrise Showtime. Its color, when low on the horizon, the strawberry moon is reddish, so it is a bit strawberry in color. 
or as they've reckoned in Europe, a rose moon, a mead moon, or a bit less reddish, a honey moon. Today's pot is a lot stronger, exponentially stronger, than when the legalization movement got seriously underway in the mid-1970s. Some of today's weed is 68% THC, just the way it's now bred to be. And health concerns have gone up in the two states where recreational marijuana has been legalized, Colorado and Washington. Despite their laws restricting sales to people over 21, these powerful edibles and concentrates are ending up in the hands and bloodstreams of teenagers and, in some cases, younger children. The results are described as painfully dramatic, a health danger, a mental health risk, and a blow to still-developing brains. At that strength and at that age, it's even said to be addictive. Quoting one father, underage kids have unbelievable access to nuclear-strength weed. It was thought that eliminating the black market by legalizing pot would keep teenagers from getting it. Instead, it's developed a different black market for those under 21. One educator says his school district is using its share of the state's weed tax windfall to, in his words, tell kids not to use weed. This is not your father's marijuana or even your grandfather's. And this is certainly not the stuff they were using 2,500 years ago. Scientists who were not looking for ancient weed use had found it while searching for the burners used at funerals in Central Asia in the far reaches of the eastern Himalaya mountains. What they found in analyzing these burners were chemicals that matched the residue of burned cannabis. People, they presume, inhaled the smoke from a kind of incense burner. This pot burner find suggests that ancient humans had discovered plants with psychoactive properties at least 2,500 years ago. The scientists theorized that travelers through the region may have picked up the habit and a few seeds and taken them wherever they were ultimately headed. Music legend Willie Nelson said this week that by replacing the 20 Chesterfield cigarettes in his last pack with 20 joints, he never looked back at nicotine. After four bouts of pneumonia and a collapsed lung that nearly killed him, Willie Nelson chose the vice that made him feel better. Nelson told Jimmy Fallon this week that he is the chief tester for his own brand of legal weed, adding, I haven't run across any I didn't like. Nelson also plugged Habitat for Horses, which rescues horses scheduled for slaughter. He's purchased 50 of those horses for himself. Going out of my head, can't take my eyes off of you. That's the medley many people remember from the 1960s vocal group The Letterman. Jim Pike was the lead singer as well as a co-founder of the group, and he has now died of Parkinson's complications at age 82. The group had a string of top ten hits and earned two Grammy nominations. She was the queen of designer jeans in the disco 70s and 80s, a socialite in the 60s, and the poor little rich girl at the center of a publicly scandalous battle for her custody in the 1930s. Gloria Vanderbilt dated Frank Sinatra and Howard Hughes, married a famous conductor and a famous film director, to name two. She socialized with Bill Blass and Diane Furstenberg and Truman Capote. She was a model, an actress, an author, and the mother of four boys, including CNN's Anderson Cooper, who announced her passing this week at the age of 95. 
We also lost film director Franco Zeffirelli this week at the age of 96. Zeffirelli made hit movies out of Shakespeare plays, including Hamlet and The Taming of the Shrew, but directed the best version ever, in this critic's opinion, of Romeo and Juliet. Zeffirelli also directed The Champ, Brother Son, Sister Moon, Jane Eyre, Tea with Mussolini, and Jesus of Nazareth. Christopher Lee remains dead, as reported here for a second time last week, four years after the first time I reported it. My boss, which is me, has ordered me to investigate how the story got into my stack and how I would read it without recalling having read it before in 2015. I can't imagine what has distracted me since four years ago. The investigation continues. But everything old is new again. A Men in Black sequel is the top movie this week with a $29 million take. The disappointing Secret Life of Pets is second at $25 million. The critically acclaimed Toy Story sequel is said to be much better. Rocket Man remains in fifth place, so there's still time to see that as well. If you need a showtime or tickets, it would be grand if you were to click through the Fandango logo at buzzburbank.com. At last check, a Florida man was well on his way to seeing Avengers Endgame for the 200th time. Grown 30-year-old Augustin Alanis had, within the past week, seen that three-hour movie nearly 120 times already. He should have it memorized by now, which is bound to benefit him somehow later. He's going for a Guinness World Record, and he says he was inspired by the previous record holder who saw the last Avengers film 103 times. Whose time is it anyway? While we debate keeping daylight saving time year-round, others are debating whether to keep time at all. In Norway, where the sun doesn't set at all for 69 days out of the year, the people on the island of Samurai are asking that the clock be disregarded completely during those 69 days and nights. They're asking for flexible school and work hours between May 18th and July 26th to make fun while the sun shines. Because for about that same 69 days a year on that island north of the Arctic Circle, the sun doesn't come up at all. Roswell, New Mexico, famous for its UFO mystique, has a new trademarked tourism logo. It's the silhouette of a flying saucer bearing the letter R. While the R probably stands for Roswell, they may know something we don't. In Greece, a chef has broken the Guinness record for the number of hamburgers cooked in one hour. The chef cranked out 3,378 hamburgers in 60 minutes. Now that's fast food. There may be stowaways on your summer vacation flight. Some Welsh tourists got home and unpacked their luggage to find an 8-inch-long Balkan green lizard from the Greek island of Kos. He's now safely in the hands of animal rescuers eating locusts and adjusting to his new home in a reptile center. And a 20-year-old Virginia man, meanwhile, found a foot-long southern black racer snake in his backpack once he arrived in Hawaii. Hawaii's natural resources officials will take it from here. Check your bags for stowaway reptiles, apparently. And finally, from the police blotter, stupidity file. One. A Louisiana man's been arrested for stealing his neighbor's new surveillance camera. The theft was viewed in real time by the victim who was able to identify his thieving neighbor 
on the video from that stolen wireless camera. In St. Louis, number two, a woman spent two and a half days in jail, not in a cell, just in the jail. A free woman, she could not find her way out of the building. She exited through a door that led to the stairway fire exit, which, like all the other doors in that stairwell, locked behind her. She yelled for help, but no one who heard her could find her since she kept moving from floor to floor. Two and a half days later, she was spotted peeking out of one of those little glass windows on one of those stairwell doors. And three, in South Carolina, a woman was arrested for public intoxication. She was not charged with DUI, even though she was driving at the time of her arrest, driving a little toy truck. Police say she was picked up about a mile from her house. I'm Buzz Burbank. Thanks for shopping my sponsors and the PayPal button at buzzburbank.com. I'll be back next Thursday with another Buzz Burbank news and comments. The preceding presentation was brought to you by The Realm Network.